Let's give a hand to the lovely and talented Anton. <laughs> he sings and he moves away. <laughs> you know, Paige does a great job with, uh, now it's not easy to get up here and, and in, a, in a clear, compelling, concise, and warm way communicate all that information. I'm grateful for her leadership role, not just on the stage here with announcements, but in so many things that she does. I want to add one more little announcement that uh, I'm going to put my little stamp on, and that is, you know, from time to time at our campuses, um, North Aurora and Mill Creek in particular, they'll do something that's campus-specific. And since they have a little bit of a smaller attendance, they can do, like, picnics and lunches and afterwards. And I have felt like at Kesslinger, like, that's not fair. Why can't we have fun after service? And so we're planning a post-service picnic, a cookout, where on October 16th, we're going to get together following the second service uh, right outside. If hopefully the weather's nice, and we're going to grill, and we're going to have lunch together. You could grab your hot dog and burger and take off if you want, if you don't like people. If you want to stick around and get to know each other, you can stay. We're going to have a great time together. So we'll provide all the food and drinks, but I'm looking for 12 guys with grills. It could be girls. 12 humans with grills who want to stick around here and grill afterwards and show you'll need to be here during the second service to set up out there on the lawn and uh, be, uh, we'll have like an army of grills and we'll have a great time of fellowship together. So if you're interested in that, you can let us know online or you can stop by the, there's a kiosk out there in the lobby today where you can sign up. We're looking for 12 people with grills to you know, do it upright. We'll even have a contest who makes the best dog or burger. But it'll be a great time to fellowship together after the service on October 16th. Hope to see you there. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Father, there is a lot going on in our church family and in our own families. It can feel overwhelming at times, sometimes hard to keep up. But in this moment, we're asking you to slow us down a bit, tune our hearts in, because we believe you have something to say to us. So help me to say it and help us to hear it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, we took a trip to England, and I, my wife forbid me to show any more pictures because she said you're going to make this whole thing slideshow from your trips to England. So, uh, but I'll tell you a story, even if I can't show you a picture. Uh, you know, you're, in England, you drive on the, the, the left side of the road, but on the right side of the car, which is totally confusing. Uh, and so we rented a car for our two-week trip in England, and we were driving from the Cotswolds to Bath to the Peak District to the Lake District. It was a lot of driving. And for the first seven days, I don't know if you know this, but in rural country villages in England, they don't have, like, big lanes like we do. Like, if you think Route 31 is narrow by the Fox River, that's nothing. That's like a giant highway compared to where I was driving. And it's not like there's a shoulder to get over on. It's a rock wall right there, you know. And so I was a little uh, stressed out, to, be, to put it mildly. And then when we were driving up to the Peak District, if you've read the Jane Austen novels or maybe you've seen Pride and Prejudice, the movie with Keira Knightley, the Peak District is where a part of that is filmed. My wife is a big fan. We wanted to go there. But we, my Wi-Fi, my, my Verizon service wasn't working for the first seven days we were there. So I only had Wi-Fi if we had Wi-Fi. So we screenshot directions in our little cottage we're staying in. I mean, who remembers the MapQuest days you printed out, right? Or the old Atlas. Remember, like you're looking through, like trying to find your coordinates, you know, so... So we have screenshot directions to try to find our way two and a half hours north in, in England. So I'm driving in roundabouts and on narrow lanes. My wife is trying to read off the screenshots from her phone. We made it there uh, without too much marital strife. But um, anyway, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange thing. We've become so dependent on, like, Apple Maps or a voice on our phone to tell us when to turn and where to go. It's, it's a bit disorienting when you lose that, isn't it? Like, how do we get anywhere these days? How do we know the way to wherever we're going? In fact, we could walk lots of places we went in England. We took these public footpaths. And sometimes the directions say, proceed to the left, bear left across three fields on our way to some village. Well, they're just open sheep and cow pastures. 
So we're just walking through cow pastures. I'm like, I'm sure this is right. My wife's like, I don't think this is right. And it was sheep, sheep droppings everywhere. Impossible to miss them. And so I'm like, this is the wrong path. We have gone the wrong way. We're walking back and some little far, some farmer is looking at us over his walls, like in his, in his accent, where are you going? I said, to Burton. He's like, mm-mm, that way. So anyway. Today, as, as you heard, we begin a new 10-week series on the way. A 10-week series on what does it mean to follow Jesus on the way. And we're going to look at what does it look like to be followers of him specifically. How do we live? What do we do? And you might be thinking, well, what, what is that? Why the title of the way? What does it mean to be on the way? The last two weeks, we looked at what is the church and what does the church do? If you missed those, you can go back and re-listen to those. Now we're talking about, well, what, what, does, the, what does the follower of Jesus, how, what, is our, what do our character of our lives look like? corporately and individually. And interestingly, in the book of Acts, last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, which is the story of the birth of the early church, the earliest days of the church. It's birth and explosive growth in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. And then in the book of Acts, Christians are referred to as people of the way. They didn't really know what to call Christians. In fact, Christian initially was a pejorative term. And they didn't know how to describe these, this, these strange followers. They were a sect of Judaism, but they weren't Jews. They followed this rabbi who died. They say he rose again. It was confusing and also compelling to people, and they didn't know what to call them. And numerous times in the book of Acts, they're referred to as the way. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, now in this passage, Saul, who will become Paul, who wrote three quarters of the New Testament, this is a reference to him talking about his, when he was persecuting Christians. And asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is not just persecuting the church and and Christians in Jerusalem, but in, in the surrounding area. He wants letters of permission from the Jewish leaders to go chase these people down, those who belong to the way. Now, there's many other references, but I wanted to show you one more in Acts 24, verse 14. Now this is Paul... He, the same guy who was Saul persecuting Christians now has become Paul the Apostle, and he's on trial for being a follower of Jesus by Governor Felix, and here's what he's pleading his case. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So Saul, who persecuted the way, becomes Paul, a follower of the way, and when he's on trial for, for following the way, he says, it's not a sect, I, I worship the true God. That's the way. They just didn't know what to call these Christians. What do you think they call Christians today? How are we referred to? There's something in the first century that was odd, unusual, confusing, maybe even to those who were against them, repellent, but also radically attractive and compelling because of the way that they lived. So what is the way? Simply put, the way is the way of Jesus. To be followers of the way means to be followers of the one who is the way. Remember, he called his disciples to follow him. There's a story about him healing a man named Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 who was blind. And Jesus comes upon him and, and, and he's crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to receive my sight. Instantly, the Bible says he received his sight. He got up and he followed him on the way. The Greek word there for way is the word hodos. Same word here. It can mean like directional path, but it can also mean quality of life. 
And it has both connotations when it refers to those who follow Jesus. So what does it look like for us to commit ourselves to his way in our day? That's the next 10 weeks. And the place we should begin is with what Jesus himself says about the way. John 14, verses 1 through 6. We're going to walk through this passage this morning. I'm going to guess most of you will have heard some portions of this and will be familiar to you, even if you didn't know the context. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm going to guess all of you have heard verse 6 before. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe you didn't know, perhaps, the context. Interesting little context for this passage. In John chapter 13, it's the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And they're confused by this. This is servant's behavior. And Jesus says, I, who am your master and Lord, have served you. Now you must serve each other. They're scratching their heads trying to make sense of this. Jesus talks about his death, which is really troubling to them. He talks about the fact that he has to go away. And then two things happen right toward the end of chapter 13. First, he predicts that one of them will betray him. I want you to pause and think about that for a minute. The 12 disciples, the closest people to Jesus, he says to them, he's been talking about going away and the fact that he has to die, he's washed their feet. So they're, as usual, a little bit confused about what Jesus means by all this. And then he says, one of you is a traitor. How would that feel like? And interestingly, we know who that is, Because the story says that they they don't know. They ask, is it me? Is it me? And Peter asks John, hey, ask Jesus who it is. Peter won't ask him himself, but he has John ask. So John asks, and Jesus says, the one who I dip the bread with, and he dips the bread with Judas. And he says to Judas quietly, go and do what you came, do what you must do, do quickly. And he leaves. But the disciples still don't know. They're not sure. They they think he's just going to handle something with the money because he was the, the group treasurer. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they don't all go, it's Judas, totally knew it. Totally him. They don't do that. They don't, is it me? Is it me? And then, at the end of chapter 13, right before this passage, Jesus says to Peter, you will betray me. You will deny me. Peter says to Jesus, why can't we go where you're going? Because Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow. And He says, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, really, Peter? Really? You'll die for me? Actually, you'll deny you even know me. Now think about, if you're one of the 12, what does that feel like to you? Jesus is talking about going away, about dying. He says, one will betray. And he tells Peter, you're going to deny. No wonder he starts out in chapter 14, the next verse, with don't let your hearts be troubled. They had reason to have troubled hearts. He's saying things that were troubling to them. Where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving us? Death, why are you talking about death? Betrayal, we would never. Denial, Peter? They were deeply troubled. Now Jesus, interestingly, does not say, now that we got rid of that traitor Judas, you guys can all trust each other. You can count on one another. 
Nor does he say, now that we got rid of that bad apple, believe in yourselves. Get rid of the bad influence. What does Jesus say is, is the solution to troubled hearts? Believe in God, believe also in me. The cure for troubled heart is to trust Jesus. I want you to pause here for just a second. Think about what he's saying. When one of the people you thought you could count on betrays you, fails in their commitment to live up to the faith, maybe somebody you know personally, maybe somebody you've read and listened to from afar, maybe a a well-known Christian leader, maybe somebody in your own family, when somebody fails, when somebody betrays trust, what do you do? Or, or more personal, when you fail, when you betray trust, what do you do? Jesus says, you don't stop trusting altogether, but you are reminded, where is my trust to be placed? The word believe can be translated trust. You believe in God, believe also in me. The, the antidote, the only way forward in this is not to stop trusting, but to place our trust in the one who is trustworthy. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's the cure for a troubled heart. Any troubled hearts this morning? Anybody looking at your own life or those around you and wondering, who can I count on? Who's trustworthy? Jesus tells you. And then he says, I'm gonna go away and prepare a place for you. Now we shouldn't think of him like with a hammer and a, and a saw and a tape measure like building a house. Remember, the, he's at my, my father's house or many rooms. Some translations say many mansions. And I have a friend who used to grow up singing the song, I have a mansion on a hill far away. And then he found out, actually, it's like a room in a mansion. He thought, oh, I don't get my own mansion. That's not at all what it's talking about, right? It's not your special house in heaven. It, it, the reference to my father's house is the place of home. Yesterday, my wife and I took a bike ride. We rode up north and came back. And on our way back, we knew that my, my two sons were home and my daughter was coming over. We were gonna, I was going to get the green egg, smoke some salmon. We we're going to have a great time together with family. So we're pedaling to our house and I can see my house on the block. And it's nothing special, but it's my home, right? My kids are going to be there. We're going to be together as a family. Have you had those experiences driving home, coming home, and it feels good? It feels right? That's just the tiniest glimpse. Your best experience of home is the tiniest glimpse of what awaits you with the Father's house the place where you are accepted for who you are. People finish your sentences and it's good. You're welcome there. You're secure there. You're loved there. There's joy and there's peace and there's security there. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare that place for you. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that I'm gonna do it. In other words, you can count on Jesus. There's room for you in his father's house. You can trust him. Peter promises more than he could ever deliver. Jesus delivers exactly what he promises. He's telling his disciples, people around you are going to fail. You're going to fail. Trust me. I've got it. I've got you. The future is secure, and it's better than you can imagine. So Thomas then speaks up, and he asks a question. Thomas, we also know him as Doubting Thomas after the resurrection. I will not believe unless I can see the nail marks, right? It's an unfortunate nickname for all the rest of history, Doubting Thomas, because I like this guy. He asks a question that nobody will ask, but everybody's probably thinking. Jesus says in, in verse four, where I'm going, you know the way. And Thomas goes, actually, no. We don't know where you're going. We don't even know what you're talking about, Jesus. How can we know the way? This is the question. How can I know the way? Thomas asks it on behalf of all the disciples, and I, I would suggest that this is the, one of the most profound questions of the human heart. 
It's a question every one of us comes to ask in some form or fashion in our lives. How, how can I know the way to security, to significance, to my true identity, to peace, to comfort, to joy, to purpose, to salvation? Fill in the blank. What's the way? And our culture is full of paths, isn't it? Full of people saying this is the way. This is the way. Thomas asked the question that we all ask. It's the question, frankly, if you think about it, that every single major world religion is trying to answer in some form or fashion. I don't know how many world religion scholars there are out there. I'm certainly not one, but I've done a fair bit of reading. And you could boil it down in a way. This is oversimplification, but if you go to the next slide there, I'll draw it for you. Or at least I'll try to. That um, if you think about major world religions, they're all trying to make their way to, well, they, they put it differently, right? But some say God, some say salvation, some say nirvana, some say enlightenment, some say escaping judgment, paradise. You become God, you become like God. You know, we're, we're trying to get somewhere, right? To achieve something. And, and effectively, they're really some kind of spiritual... I guess, for lack of a better term, ladder climbing. If you take, Pastor Brian was recently in Nepal, and he, Hinduism and Buddhism are prevalent there, and he's talking about how complicated those religions are. And again, this is oversimplification, but for the Buddha, the four noble truths and the eightfold path, you follow those, and you reach enlightenment. You, you, you escape from the veil, the illusion of this world, you escape from suffering, you reach enlightenment. Hinduism is a little bit similar, but also different. The law of karma and reincarnation, you're, you're reincarnated up the chain based on how you live and you reach, uh, you become one with uh, Atman is Brahman, if you're familiar with Hindu, Hindu phraseology. Or, or Islam, for example, the five pillars of the Quran. if you're faithful to those, you'll escape the judgment of Allah and make it to paradise. We go right on down the list. And I, again, I know that I'm painting with a broad brush here, but effectively, it's some form of doing, meditating, praying, being enough that you ascend, that you escape God's judgment, that you make it to paradise, that you reach enlightenment, that you become one with the universe, that you achieve God-like status on your own, what, however you phrase it, right? We're trying to get there. Christianity works on a fundamentally different principle. God, you cannot ascend to God. He's infinite and perfect, and you could never possibly pray enough, meditate enough, give enough, um, empty yourself enough, or fill yourself enough to achieve, to become, to reach him. It's not possible. So the fundamental direction of Christianity is different. God condescends to us. He comes to us, redeems us, saves us, forgives us, brings us into his family. So when you think of the word grace, think of this. Grace is not something God gives you to help you get to him. Grace is God coming to you because you could never make it. He's gracious and he's loving and he sees us in our lostness, fumbling around, trying to find the way. And he comes to us in Christ, pays the penalty for our sin at the cross. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, where's he going? Where's he going? Heaven? But first, where? The cross. That's where he's going. He says this before his death. So when, he, when he's going to prepare a place, it's his death and his resurrection that opens the way. Hebrews tells us this. A new and living way has been opened to us through his body. 
He's going to prepare the way to the Father because you couldn't get there otherwise. You could never make it. That's what he's saying to his confused, lost disciples when Thomas says, how can we know the way? So the answer then, if we go to the answer, the question is, how can we know the way? Jesus' answer is, you know the way by knowing Jesus. Jesus says, you, know, you already know the way. And Thomas goes, actually, we don't. And Jesus says, you do because you know me. I am the way. This is one of the seven I am statements of Jesus in the New Testament, by the way. Many New Testament scholars think it's references to, it's the Greek reference to an aspect of his sacred name, Yahweh. We're just saying Yahweh, Yahweh. The sacred name of God, the I am. I am the way, he says. Jesus is utterly unlike any other religious leader or teacher in history. He doesn't say, I'll show you the way. He doesn't say, I'll teach you the way. He doesn't say, I'll explain to you the way or model the way for you or lead you in the way. He says, I am the way. No other world religious leader in history has ever said something like that and then come to die. It's utterly unique. John 14, 6, one more time. Jesus said to him, just for the point of emphasis, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I'm going to teach you how to live the life. I'm going to explain to you the truth. I'm going to reveal to you the truth. He says, it's me. We must get this part right in this series. And for the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about things we have to do. Things, ways in which God has called us to live. The way of justice and forgiveness and service and generosity. And we're going to get to all that. And those things matter. But here's the crucial part. They flow out of a relationship with the one who is the way. They are not a way for you to ascend to God. So many of us get this wrong. We think the Christian life is some form of ladder climbing. It isn't. He's the way. And he comes to us and redeems us. And then invites us and says, now walk with me. Live my way, by my strength and power and grace. We have to get the order right there. All the things we talk about in this series, all the specific actions and disciplines flow out of this relationship. The way is a relationship. The way is a person. This is why Jesus says, you know the way, because you know me. So first, or the first aspect of this, the way of truth. When Jesus says that he's the truth, this sounds like a very exclusive uh, and narrow claim in our culture today, doesn't it? What do you mean you're the truth, Jesus? I mean, I believe you're, you're you know, an aspect of the truth, but how can you say you're the truth? I mean, you have your truth, I have my truth. What's most important in life is that you live your truth, that you're faithful to your truth. And Jesus is say, cutting right against that our cultural sensibilities and says, I am the truth. He, it is exclusive. But if you think about it, truth by definition is exclusive, isn't it? It excludes some things are true and some things are not true. Like, for example, if you said, hey, Pastor Jeff, I want you to come over to my house after church today. We're having a wonderful cookout. I said, great. I don't know where you live. Could you give me directions? Because I might just pretend we live in a time before cell phone service and GPS, right? And you said, well, just head south on Randall and follow your truth from there. <laughs> well, I might show up, but probably not. No, there's a, an objective reality to your address, to where you live. It's an actual geographical location, and then not every way leads there. 
Or I've shared this analogy before, but what if I told you, you know, Pastor Brian has been such a remarkable leader in the history of our church. I'm going to write a book about his life and legacy. You thought, that's great. Someone should do that. And I said, in my book, Pastor Brian is seven foot two inches tall. He has red hair and freckles, and he's Chinese. You'd say, well, uh, that's weird, first of all. Second of all, that's not who he is. What does it matter? That's how I like to think of him. So I'm going to write the book that way. You'd say, you can't do that, Pastor Jeff. You can't just make up. There's an objective reality to who he is. You're not free to just invent him. Why not? People do this with God all the time. Is there an objective reality to who God is? If there is, that means there are certain things he is not. Who he is not. We are not free to invent him. To say, well, I don't like this part. I don't think God would say that. And so I like to think of him as... Jesus says, I am the truth. And that means he's the fixed reference point for all other truth claims. He's the embodiment of truth. He's truth incarnate. He's the source of all truth. And that means he's the reference point by which we evaluate what's true and false in the world. He's saying something that that ought to shake us up a bit. It shouldn't be surprising that it's a bit offensive in our pluralistic culture today. In John 5, verse 20, it won't be on the screens here, but I'll just read it for you. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and he is eternal life. He's given us understanding. Why? So that we might know what is true. What is the truth? What is true? His son, Jesus Christ, who is truth and is eternal life. Now you might be thinking, well, well, help me understand the definition of truth then. Truth is that which correlates to ultimate reality. And the scriptures are clear that God is ultimate reality. All things live and move and have their being in him and hold together by a word of his power. So truth is that which corresponds to the character, nature, will, purpose, and glory of God. That's what's true. Now, I want to be clear. You can find glimpses of his truth in places outside of the Bible. In scientific exploration and research, in cultural anthropology, in psychology, in history, in literature, in poetry. Absolutely, all truth belongs to God. He's the source of all truth. Even if those who wrote it don't know where it comes from. We can find hints of his truth. Nevertheless, he's the reference point. He's the source. He's our true north. There's a fascinating exchange between Jesus and a man named Pontius Pilate. You might remember the, the deeply profound question Pilate asks, somewhat cynical, when he has this trial of Jesus. What is truth? We'll read a portion of it here from John chapter 18. Jesus said, but then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went out back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. I think Pilate is not asking a sincere question there. Cynical way of keeping it at arm's length. What is truth? But he also knows this man does not deserve to die. What do you do with the truth when you find it? Or more specifically, what do you do with the truth when it finds you? You surrender to it. You align your heart with it. 
You follow it. You follow him. There's a purpose statement given for John's gospel. In John 20, verse 31, you might think, why why did John write his gospel? And and interestingly, at the end of John's gospel, he says, if all that Jesus said and did were to be written down, there would not be enough books in the libraries of the world to contain it all. The the Bodleian Library at, at Oxford has 124 miles of shelf space. The Wider Library in Harvard has over 6 million volumes. So John says, how many of you think the Bible's kind of a big book and it's hard to get through? Anybody? Liars. <laughs> yeah. John, so in other words, we're getting a pretty thin cross-section of what we could have been given. And if you wonder, why did we get this? John tells us. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did God give us what he gave us and not other things? so that you would believe the truth about who he is. And by that belief and trust in him, you would have life. He says, I am the life. The way of life. Interesting phrase, the way of life. When I was, uh, you, you met Pastor Enoch and his wife, Chanel, last week. They were here from St. Croix. There's a different way of life on the island of St. Croix. He talks about the island way. He said when he was here, like, if I, I get really nervous and feel lost if I don't see big expanses of blue. I said, well, Lake, Lake Michigan probably won't cut it for you then. You better go home, right? Different way on the island. When you go to England, in rural England, the Cotswolds, these little villages are, like, stuck in time for hundreds of years. They haven't changed. They're still an agrarian society. There's tourism, but it's a different way, different pace, slower. We talk about the American way of life. Maybe I watched an NFL show about the patriots in their heyday, the patriot way. We use this phrase as if it's a particular way. What, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the life, the way of life? We think of creating our own life, don't we, sometimes? Building it. I, I, I've seen Facebook posts like this, and this is no shade on you if you've posted this, because I understand where it comes from, but people say things sometimes like, I love this life we're building together. Well, I love this life we've built. And to a degree, I understand what we mean by that. You know, I, we bought a house together. We raised our kids together. We have a life that we're, we're, we built. But ultimately speaking, you don't build your life. Jesus says, I am the life. John chapter 10, verse 10. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. This is 1 John 5, 11 through 12, excuse me. Whoever does not, whoop, where are we? Okay, well, that's right. Look up there. Yeah. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Who's the thief? Well, Satan, the evil one. But if we, if we parse that out a bit, you try to build your life on anything other than Jesus, it will ultimately steal, kill, and destroy true life. It'll rob you of true joy. It'll prevent you from having abundant true life. Jesus puts it in a different place in the Gospels. The one who builds his house on the sand, what happens? Crumbles. It's gone. Destroyed. On the rock. On him. It stands. Now, 1 John 5, 11 through 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Finally, Briefly, the way of Jesus, which is really just a lead-in to the rest of the series. If Jesus is who he says he is, 
if he's, if he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, comes home, comes to the place of acceptance and welcome and joy and purpose and peace and security except through him, what do you do? I want to finish with this fascinating little story in John chapter 6. Jesus has been teaching some hard things. And there's the 12 disciples, but there's also a group of 100 or so or more of followers, and then there's the crowds around him. And he's saying things like, you know, if you, want to, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You have to die to live. You must, you know, sell all your possessions and follow me. You must have the dead bury their own dead. Leave father and mother, houses and homes. The son of man has no place to lay his head, right? And he's saying things that are freaking people out. And they're starting to walk away. Now, if I was Jesus, and you should be all eternally grateful that I'm not, I would be like, ah, this is, what's happening? We're losing momentum. Where are they all going? And Jesus is totally unfazed by this. In fact, there's this fascinating account here in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This disciples doesn't refer to the 12, it refers to the larger gathering of followers. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Isn't this, I love this about Jesus. People are leaving. Like if in our church people started leaving, I think I'd freak out a little bit. Just, Just going. But Jesus goes to the 12, to the core. He says, you guys want to go too? There's the door. You want to go? Listen to what Peter says. Peter gets a lot of things wrong, but sometimes he gets it dead right. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, if you come to that point in your life, I, don't, I, mean, I don't mean mildly religious and you go to church because you feel spiritual and good about yourself and you're trying to put a little ad into your suburban life. I mean, have you come to the place in your life where you said, I, I don't always like it. I'm sometimes confused by it. Sometimes I'm even offended by what he says, but where else can I go? I got nowhere else to go. You and you alone, Lord, have words of eternal life. So even though sometimes I get it wrong and sometimes I resist, I come back and get on my knees again and say, Lord, you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. Forgive me for looking anywhere else. Have you come to that point with Simon Peter where you could say that? Because we're living in a culture where people walk away from all kinds of commitments, don't they? Just doubt. I can say and know, you and you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. You, You feel a little lost in your life right now? Jesus is the way. You feel a little confused right now in our culture? You're not sure who to believe? Who's telling you the truth? Jesus is the truth. You feel a little anxious, depressed, fearful, dead inside even? Jesus is the life. Look for no other. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we praise you for these words you've given to us. And as we launch into a series on what it means to follow you, may we never deviate from this central truth. That everything you call us to do flows out of a relationship with you. You alone are the way. The way is not a a philosophy we believe or rules we obey. It's you, Jesus. It's a relationship with you. So thank you that you were so clear and you are so clear. Help us, like Peter, to remember that we have no place else to turn for you alone have the words of life. We give you all the praise and glory. Amen. Perhaps this morning, uh, before you go, you're here and you're
you're feeling a little bit lost, not sure of the way, or needing a little bit of truth, life even. We have members of the prayer team who pray for you whether you show up or not, but would love to meet with you and encourage you through prayer right back in the classroom. So if that's you, feel free to stop by there. People would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Now, brothers and sisters, we just sang it, but go in the grace of the one who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. May he be your life now and forever. Amen. And go in peace.